Father, I thank you, Lord, for bringing me back safely. I thank you, Father, for uh, reassembling us and for offering us this opportunity to study what you provided for our benefit. And, Father, perhaps for some of us it's a, an appropriate moment to offer a confession of, of uh, repentance, Father, for not having devoted ourselves as much as we could have with all that you've made available. Uh, for others, Father, perhaps it's just the moment of thanks that we are able to study this way and we enjoy it and we know, Father, what benefits it brings to us in our walk. And we're so thankful that you have uh, brought it to us when we know it's not the case that, that everyone in the body of Christ has, has the equal opportunity to do this. And uh, I pray, Father, we would give it the same uh, conscientiousness that we give to other studies in our wa- different walks of life, that when we take a class in a classroom and we wonder how can this ever be useful to us, we devote ourselves to it nonetheless because we trust that it will come into, come into our need at some point. And if that's true, Father, for human wisdom, how much more so than for your wisdom? So I ask, Father, that you'd uh, open our eyes and our hearts to what you intend for us to understand out of this story that John wrote and this woman who experienced Christ this day. And perhaps, Father, let us use it in some meaningful way to walk more like him or to speak to others as him. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So we pick up again in that encounter of Christ with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This is the moment when Jesus was walking back from Jerusalem to the Galilee after he had been in Jerusalem for the Passover. And he has the beginning of his disciples in tow. They have to go through this region that's in between Judea, which is in the southern part of Israel today, part that includes Jerusalem, and the Galilee, which is the northern part of modern day Jerusalem. In between those two, you have a section called Samaria. And this area is hostile to Jews. As we learned last time, the Samaritans were a group who went to great lengths to counterfeit Judaism. They had descended historically from the northern tribes of Israel, but they had polluted their bloodlines over that history by marrying some of the Gentile peoples that were in that same region. And by that intermarriage with Gentiles, they essentially forfeited their Jewishness. But they themselves still saw themselves as Jew. While the Jewish people, the true Jewish people, rejected them as such. As a result, having been spurned centuries earlier by Ezra and by Zerubbabel and by the men building the temple, as we studied, by, by that Jewish remnant, as a result, they became enemies of Israel and contended with Israel for the true title of Jew. They counterfeited Judaism with an elaborate system of religious laws, with a temple of their own making on a different mountain. They created their own priesthood, all of this in competition with Israel. But as we learned last time, none of this stuff was true. I mean, they just made it all up. They created it. They mimicked the true faith. And so as a result, the Samaritan faith was a worship largely revolving around holy places, relics, rituals, And as you probably can tell already, that's not a pattern unique to Samaritans. Uh, As we said last time, it's the definitive pattern of false religion, of any attempt to reach God absent his spirit. Someone once said that religion is man's attempts to reach God and true faith in the gospel is God's opportunity for men to know him, to reach us, that is. Man-made religion is always a man-made attempt to reach up to heaven. But true revelation is always delivered from heaven 
by the word of God. And so in this story, this Samaritan woman meets Jesus at a well. She's trapped in this false religious system, but she doesn't know it's false. I mean, who does, right? Those who are trapped by false religion, by definition, feel they have found the real thing. They're trapped by it. They're deceived by it. But in this day, she knows there must be something more to worshiping God than the things that she's been taught. More importantly, she knows that her life doesn't reflect God's presence, at least at an unconscious or subconscious level, as we're going to see in this story. Whatever her religion is doing for her, it's not producing reconciliation with God. So on this day, a woman trapped in false religion meets the truth. That is the way and the truth and the life. So John 4, verses 5 through 9. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, this is taking place in a location called Sakar. That's a city located just outside of the ancient city of Shechem. It's on this land that Jacob gave his son Joseph a well, according to Genesis 48. And this particular spot, as we said last time, is within sight of this mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is the place within Samaria that the Samaritans had put their temple. So the Samaritans' false temple sat on Mount Gerizim. You could see it if you had been standing there with Christ and this woman and looked in the right direction. You could look up at this temple. And Jesus picks this place at this particular well to stop and get a drink. And sends his disciples off to get food. So he's alone there. And the Samaritans, we said last time, calls this, call this Jacob's well. But that's more likely folklore than any actual reference to history. I mean, Jacob had a well and it was somewhere in this land. But there's no reason to know that that was the particular well, though it might have been. Whatever it was in historic terms, though, it has become a religious relic to those in Samaria. They used their claim to possessing Jacob's well as a proof that they were the true Jews. It was as if having this well was one piece of validation for their faith. And in that way, they were guilty of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. In verse 7, Jesus opens the conversation. He asks this Samaritan woman who comes to draw water, would you give me a drink? And as you can tell, she's surprised by that request. She says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask a Samaritan woman for, for drink, for water? She asks, notice, not... Why? But how? Because what she's alluding to is the fact that under Jewish law, under Jewish tradition and the teaching of the Pharisees, Jews were forbidden to ever become indebted to a Samaritan, among many other rules they had concerning Samaritans. So the fact that you would ask a Samaritan for anything, including a service or a favor of this regard, was effectively putting yourself in a form of debt. You would indebt yourself to them in that regard, even if it was something very minor like this. If you didn't pay them, You shouldn't ask them. Furthermore, men would rarely go to the point of showing this kind of regard for a woman. In any case, particularly a strange woman, even if she had been a Jew. So I think when she asks him how, she's referring to these two rules or customs. She's saying, how are you able to get around this rule? How is it you're able to take something from me, since I'm a Samaritan, much less also a woman, 
And the answer, of course, is that those are limits set by man, not by God. God is not a respecter of persons, according to Acts chapter 10. These restrictions were the result of human prejudice instituted by rulers of Israel as a means of shunning Samaritans. But Jesus, as Luke tells us, came to seek and to save the lost, not to judge them. So he engages this woman for for the sake of asking water. There's no problem in that for him. And I think you can all learn something from that technique. He engages the lost. Jesus doesn't wait for her to speak first. He doesn't avoid the conversation altogether. We are on earth to engage for the sake of the gospel. We are his ambassadors, so it would make sense we should follow his pattern. So the first thing we learn is he engages the lost when she would have otherwise expected silence. Secondly, Jesus doesn't start the conversation with a religious conversation. How many of us would say, do you know my Jesus? Do you know the Lord? He begins with a simple request for water. Reminder to all of us that we need to be real and we need to be natural as we try to seek these connections. We don't start our conversations with, do you have Jesus in your heart or whatever? It's not wrong to say those things. That's not the point. The point is it's abrupt and it's unnatural. And it doesn't build the relationship that's eventually going to lead to something where you might have a chance to talk about such things. We don't convert to disciple. We should disciple to conversion. We should be working with somebody up to the point where they're finally open to the gospel and then we can present them with the gospel. We don't throw the gospel at them in the first 30 seconds and if they accept it, then we have a conversation about who we are and who they are and where we go next. It doesn't fit. It's not natural. We ought to be thinking about ways to establish relationship. Jesus works the relationship of this right from the start. And then thirdly, he's purposeful. Do you think his interest was primarily in water? He could have waited for the disciples if he was just going to get water. His point in this is bigger than just the need for water. He knew that his request would take this woman by surprise. He uses this surprise to begin a conversation that will lead to something purposeful. He knows that as she works with him in this conversation, he can direct it into something more meaningful. And if she takes the bait, so to speak, then there's an opportunity at a simple level. It is have an attitude of engagement with the world around you, number one. Number two, start conversations that are natural and lead to relationship without so much concerning yourself with how I fit Jesus into it right away. But be purposeful in the end so that you never forget that is the reason for the conversation. So that it eventually does land on spiritual things if there's an opportunity. So as we see this scene play out, we're going to watch how Jesus's method works. There's this sense of two ships passing in the night as the conversation ensues, such that you have Jesus talking on one level and the woman talking on a different level. And it takes a while before the woman catches up, so to speak, to where Christ is. And there's a a lesson in that as well. So just like with Nicodemus, Jesus was talking about spiritual birth. He thought it was all about physical birth and on and on. We're going to be looking at that in this story. There's a great joke about a mature couple who suffered under similar circumstances. A a lady had an appointment with a marriage counselor and she was quite elderly and uh, a bit hard of hearing. And she said, I would like to divorce my husband. And the counselor replied, well, do you have any grounds? And she said, well, yeah, we have almost an acre. And the puzzled counselor asked her, no, 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 you don't understand. What what I want to know is, do you and your husband have a grudge? She says, no, we have a carport. (laughs) He says, ma'am, I'm sorry, but I, I just don't see any reason why you want to divorce your husband. And the lady looked at the counselor and said, well, it's just that the man can't carry on an intelligent conversation. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him 
and he would have given you living water. So after that woman's rather disrespectful comment, I should add, Jesus responds by raising an entirely different topic, but one that uses the subject of water as a metaphor, much like he did with birth earlier. He says, if this woman knew the gift of God and if she knew who she was speaking to, then she would have asked Jesus for living water. Living water in in Jewish parlance is a euphemism that literally means flowing water. Flowing water is living in the sense that it's clean and it's generally safe to drink as opposed to stagnant water. That's the concept here. But the Bible uses that term in a spiritual level as well. Living water in the Bible is a metaphor for the life-giving power of the Spirit of God. And just one quick verse to give you that example. Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. That entire comment is made in the context of spiritual things. So they have substituted the source of living water, the fountain of living water, for false pagan religion, which he says are broken cisterns that can hold no water. The same idea. Physical water becoming a metaphor, a picture of what it means to get true eternal life from God. So just as fresh water is essential to sustaining our physical bodies, so is the spirit essential to maintaining spiritual life eternally. So the Bible uses this idea of a never-ending supply of fresh water as a picture of the never-ending spiritual supply of life that comes from the Spirit of God dwelling in us. So just as with Nicodemus and birth in chapter 2, now you have Jesus speaking to someone else, but in this case about water, using this as an earthly metaphor for spiritual life. So like Nicodemus, Jesus addresses this woman who is captive in a false religious system, a false worship system, And he's calling her to know the true God, to seek the truth, to put aside the myths, to put aside the false creeds. And Jesus says, you're missing it. You're missing an opportunity because, he says, you lack two things. And notice the two things he says this woman lacks, which is holding her back from knowing the truth. First, she doesn't know the gift of God. And what is the gift of God? Well, we know he's on the topic of eternal life. Therefore, we have to assume he's talking about the gift that leads to eternal life. And Paul gives us what that is in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that, speaking of faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If she had known the grace of God manifested through the gift of faith, Jesus says, then she could have recognized Jesus. Ironically, she had just mocked him because he had asked her for a gift of water from the well. And Jesus says, you should be asking me for the gift. Secondly, Jesus says that if she had known who she was speaking to, if she knew Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, if she had known his true identity, which clearly she doesn't at this point, she would have been interested in entirely different things. If you know you're talking to the one who can grant you salvation, then no matter how that conversation starts, you're going to turn it to the question of eternal life, aren't you? If you knew this is the one and only one who can make a difference in whether I go to heaven or go to hell, I'm guessing no matter where it starts, you're going to end up on a conversation about heaven. Or so you should. Knowing that Christ is the Messiah is only possible with the gift of faith. So by God's given gift of faith in the heart, we come to understand who Christ is. And by our understanding of who he is, we seek him. 
Men cannot find the truth, the Bible says, in their own power. It's as if you and I were placed in this infinitely large room filled with boxes, but with absolutely no light in that room whatsoever. And in one of those boxes is a treasure that you want to find. And unless and until the light in that room is turned on, you have no hope to find the right right box. In fact, even if you happen to cross the box that held the treasure, you'd be more likely to stumble over it than you would be to actually know to open it and see what was in it. And that's what the Bible has to say about the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, notice this, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Notice that? The same God who spoke light into existence and creation is also the one, Paul says, who shines, so to speak, in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. So it is by an act of the gift of God through the Spirit that our hearts are illuminated to the knowledge of who Christ is. We need that light in order to find that treasure, so to speak, of eternal life. But because that light is delivered in the form of earthly vessels, first and foremost in Christ himself and then later through his ambassadors, It's designed to defeat the pride of men. It leads to moments like this, when this woman is stumbling over Jesus because he doesn't look like a Messiah. He doesn't fit the expectations of a Messiah. Who's going to expect to meet a Messiah walking a dusty road in the middle of Samaria? That's not the way that he's supposed to come, at least not to the human idea, to the sense of what we're looking for. So she's arguing with Jesus, the creator, over rules and cultural prejudices rather than opening that treasure that's standing before her. Which is why he begins by saying, you know what, if you only knew the gift of God and if you knew who was standing here before you, things would be different. But the woman isn't on Jesus' wavelength yet. She's still having this earthly conversation that misses Jesus' point. So look where she goes next, verses 11 and 12. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. So she she hears Jesus' words about the living water and and so on. And she just assumes that he's talking about the literal, the moving water, the fresh water. And to her unopened ears, it would sound as though Jesus was offering to draw water from this well or from another well, perhaps that's superior to this one and improve her situation concerning the water and then she notices hey you don't even have anything to draw water with and this well in Samaria this particular well where they're standing near Sychar is still there today you can go tour it if you get on the right bus I guess and it's over 75 feet deep which for that region and particularly in ancient times is very deep she's remarking on the fact that he isn't going to do much good without a way to draw the water and mocking him in the process so she's a bit perplexed by what he's offering And then she isn't done with her insults. She mocks him again by saying, you're not greater than our father, Jacob. Now, Jacob was probably the most important figure in Samaritan theology. He was even greater to them than Abraham was or Moses, for that matter. I mean, in the Bible, Abraham is closely associated with the land of Judea, 
which reminded the Samaritans of their enemies in Jerusalem. And Moses was the link to the Jewish law, which, remember, they had to completely change in order for it to fit their preferred view of the world. So neither of those guys were held in such high esteem. But Jacob, Jacob was king in Samaria. This is where he lived. He had his well there. This is where he gave Joseph his land. And as a result, he was their link to Judaism in their minds. So the woman reminds Jesus that you're not greater than our father. Notice she puts that word our in there. Take note, this degree of pride always accompanies man-made religion. It is an inviolable rule. You will always find this to be true. Like all Samaritans, this woman lived with a religious chip on her shoulder. She's always primed to defend her faith, her religion, against any accusation, particularly one coming from a Jew. Every relic, every acre of sacred land, every symbol was important and worthy of defense in this religion. That's the heart of every religious system that's constructed without the gift of faith, without the knowledge of Christ truly. People generally defend man-made religious systems even when the truth is against them, even when it's self-evidently against them. Because the alternative would be to concede that their religion is based on lies and pride and ego. In fact, their very identity, self-identity, is at stake in that conversation. I can remember my years growing up as a Catholic in a family of Catholics, unbelievers, all of us at the time. And I thought I had the truth because that's what we were taught. I didn't know the first thing about God or the true gospel as as no one believer would. And it would happen from time to time. Someone might suggest that I wasn't a true Christian or that I didn't have the right viewpoint. I had a knee jerk reaction to that statement that defended Catholicism. I didn't defend Christ, mind you. I didn't defend the gospel. I certainly wasn't trying to defend God's word. Those things weren't on my heart. I was defending my identity as a Catholic. I was defending my family identity, my tradition, my pride. Even a cursory study of church history would have shown me that the traditions that I sought to defend were demonstrably false. Even just the briefest study of history would have shown me that a lot of the things that I've been told were not true. But I wasn't interested in that. I mean, there was no question in my mind I was right, and there was no interest in finding out I might be wrong, because that wasn't the point. In other words, I wasn't interested in seeking the truth. I was interested in defending my pride. And this woman is likewise blindly defending her culture and her history, or she's primed to do that, certainly, because that's what man-made false religion leads to. Pharisaical piety, a mindset that says we're right because it's our view. God's word reveals the truth, of course. And because the truth comes by way of a gift, the gift of God, by its very nature, it excludes prideful boasting by those who know the truth. In fact, I've seen this pattern even within the church, of course. We're not immune from pride, even though we know the truth. And we can become very prideful about having accepted the gospel of all things. They were smart enough or born in the right place at the right time to know the truth of the gospel. And they looked down at those who rejected it, forgetting that they gained nothing of their own power. It was entirely a gift of God that they were saved. Paul says it in a couple of places. Romans 3:27. He says, where then is boasting within our faith? He says, where is their boasting? He says, it is excluded. By what kind of law? The law of works? No, he says, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27 and onward, he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. 
and the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But notice what Paul ends with. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Notice that by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Finally, Paul in First Corinthians 4, 7, speaking to this church again about their boasting, he says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Well, how ironic, right, that they could boast on something they had nothing to do with. Certainly, we work diligently to defend the truth every bit as much as those who are trapped in a false religious system would defend what they believe. We're not, we're not suggesting we have any less desire to defend. But our defense shouldn't be focused on saving face or protecting our pride. As Paul says, what do we have that wasn't given to us anyway? And if we didn't figure this out on our own, then neither should we expect to argue someone else into accepting the truth. We are messengers. And the power of our message, by the way, is that it is self-evident to those who are being saved. And it is veiled to those who are perishing. The message of salvation isn't designed to sound sensible to human intellect or pride. It is designed to sound foolish and to therefore shame the pride of men who think they can find God in their own power by their own devices. I mean, consider it. The message that saved you and I is a message that says... A criminal crucified long ago is the secret, is the power of God to get us into heaven. On its face, it makes no sense. The person who receives the gospel is showing evidence that they have received the wisdom of God by means of the spirit, such that something that sounds foolish to humanity has suddenly become the power of God in their heart. That's the proof of it, that you would accept the foolish message. So the question in our current scenario is whether this woman is going to receive that wisdom or not. To this point, she simply just defended the Samaritan perspective as a matter of pride, and she's arrogantly insulting Jesus in the process just to make worse of it. And she ends by asking Jesus if he's greater than Jacob. This is such an ironic insult because it's exactly true. Yes, I'm greater than Jacob. I made the man. He's so much greater than Jacob. Jesus' response graciously ignores her insult and just continues on teaching on the meaning of living water. Look what he says in verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So Jesus points to the water in the well and he says, you know, if you rely on this stuff, you've got to keep coming back. Physical water can only provide temporary satisfaction no matter how often. You drink of it sooner or later, you get thirsty again. We all get that. But of course, what he's talking about here goes far beyond the physical. He's speaking of how man-made religion cannot satisfy the soul's longing to be reconciled with God. No matter how often this woman sacrifices at that temple in Gerizim, or no matter how often she prays to her idols, or how often she tithes, or how much she gives, none of those things are going to take away the guilt of her sin. None of those things are going to leave her satisfied. She can come back over and over and over again. Her guilt's going to remain. No human ritual, no human work can achieve what only comes by the gift of God. Eventually, her doubts return, her fears of death return. And as you get older, they only get more pronounced if you don't know the Lord. Nothing in this world will satisfy those things. 
because rituals do not cancel out spiritual debt, nor do they fill that spiritual emptiness that every unbeliever has. So Jesus says there is a better way, though. He says, first, the one who seeks has to come to me, has to come to me for this water. You don't come to a physical well, obviously. You don't come to a relic. You don't come to a cross. I know we use that in our songs, and I get why we mean that, but we don't come to a cross. We come to the man on the cross. We come to Christ, and that's an important distinction, I think, because in some places you talk to people who don't know the Lord, but they come out of a religious system in which relics are key. And you say you have to go to a cross. You're just reinforcing, perhaps, a relic mindset there. You need to turn it to the person of Christ. You come to the person of Christ because our faith must be in him and his death and in his resurrection. So first you come to him. Secondly, what he's offering, he says, is everlasting. Not a temporary solution, not a partial solution. You're never going to have to seek it a second time. His solution satisfies because it addresses the very cause for our seeking That is, it removes the penalty for sin. And in that way, we're reconciled, Paul says, to God forever. You'll never want for anything again. And then finally, he says, once the spirit takes up residence inside us, which happens at moment of faith, he becomes a wellspring. Imagine a supply of water in the ground coming up under such force that you can't contain it. I imagine that the rock at Horeb must have looked something like that in the Exodus, that it couldn't have been contained and it would just overflow. That's the picture of Christ as living water. And that process in us, spiritually speaking, is a movement of the Spirit in us to change us from within so that even as we have been saved by the work of the Spirit in our heart, we become sanctified by that work. That work starts to move outward in the sense that who we are to the world looks different day to day to day as what's going on inside us changes who we are. That's the sanctifying process of the Spirit living in us. That's the wellspring of eternal life. Now, it'd be nice to think at this point the woman gets it. This is all starting to gel. She realizes you're not just talking about water, are you? But no, the ships are still passing. Uh, Look at her response. Verse 15, the woman said to him, well, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way down here to draw. She acts as if Jesus is still talking about literal water. I say she acts here because I'm beginning to wonder, aren't you? I mean, he mentioned eternal life in the prior moment. It's not as though he's hidden that he's talking about something deeper than physical water. He's made that abundantly clear. Even if even if you're the woman and you can't quite understand where this is going or what it means, you you know, he's not talking about the water in the well anymore. She asked sarcastically, well, give me some of this water so I don't have to get thirsty again. So I don't have to walk down here and draw my own anymore. Without her realizing it, she just put a perfect footnote to Jesus's earlier comment. She says, if I had the water you were offering, I wouldn't have to keep trying to get my own water. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. That's essentially, friends, the gospel message. Jesus's offer of eternal life eliminates the need for us to labor at obtaining our own solution to that eternal problem. We don't have to labor in dead works anymore for what God offers freely by a gift. Now, at this point, you could give the woman the benefit of the doubt. You could assume she's just missing the point. She's a little dense. But I have to believe, given what John's talked about earlier in chapter one and chapter two, that you have to conclude this is an example of what he mentioned when he said the darkness avoids the light. You won't enter into the truth because it would require exposing your evil deeds. Remember that? So this woman's in the darkness, but she won't entertain a spiritual conversation because if she was to get into spiritual discussions, inevitably that opens the door to conversation about her evil deeds, where she is in her walk, what she has exposed to the light of God, what debt she hasn't paid. And no one wants to talk about that. 
That's not a conscious process in all cases, but it is certainly there in everybody. It's instinctive. It's a result of a sinful nature. Any conversation about who God is and who we are among someone who doesn't know him through Christ's blood is at risk of examining a life that's unworthy and unready for eternal judgment. So what's going to have to happen to this person, to this woman, before she steps into the light of Christ, before she enters into this conversation? Well, the Bible tells us that once again, God has to act first. We have to be brought, the Bible says, to repentance with an expectation of forgiveness before we're willing to make that trip. She needs repentance. Now, repentance in this context is not returning away from some specific mistake. The Bible uses this term when it's connected to salvation in the sense of turning away from man-made religion and toward obedience to the gospel. Repentance means seeing ourselves the way God truly sees us and being just as troubled as God is by what he sees. The Bible says repentance is the necessary preparatory step to faith and to salvation. In Mark 1, you hear Jesus described as going out, proclaiming in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance has to precede true faith because you can't pile the truth of the gospel on top of a heap of false religion and jam it all together and assume that more is better. That's not how it works. You have to turn away from the darkness before you can come into the light, according to Scripture. And even the repentance that leads to salvation is itself a product of God's work in the heart. Paul says in Romans 2.4, he says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? 2 Corinthians 7.9, Paul says to that church, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful, listen, you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. So there is a kind of sorrow that is worldly, natural, and the simple result of things not going the way we want. And then there is a kind of sorrow that is the product of the will of God, produced in our hearts for a purpose of leading us to faith and salvation. That's a type of sorrow that comes as a consequence of his kindness, we're told. And so in kindness, Jesus takes the first step here to provoke the heart of repentance in this woman. Look what he says, verse 16 and 19. He says, go call your husband. And come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said correctly, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus tells the woman to go and get her husband. What he's asking is, I'd like to address the authority in your home. And that's a culturally expected response on Jesus's part, because if he's just offered to give her a gift and she's just accepted this gift, even if it was said sarcastically, then in that day, a man could not give a strange woman a gift. He would have to have delivered it through the husband of the home. So Jesus is calling for the husband so he can transact the business, or at least that's the surface level sense of the conversation. Right? But both of them know that that's not what's going on. I mean, she was talking to him sarcastically in the first place. And of course, he's not talking about giving a gift he can hand someone. Jesus has an entirely different purpose in raising the question of her husband. Supernaturally, he knew this woman's situation. Remember, John said in chapter 2 that Jesus knew all men and did not need anyone to testify to the nature of their hearts. Remember that? Jesus knows what's going on. He knew this woman was living in sin. He knew she had been married five times, which means that she had committed adultery four times. 
Now, on top of all that, she's got a sexual relationship that's fornication going on. She's just one step above prostitute, honestly. So by raising the question of a husband, what did Jesus just do? He just took the red hot spotlight of God and shined it right on her evil deeds and brought them into the light. You see, the darkness won't enter the light, but the light can illuminate the darkness when it's God's purpose to do so. The woman's answer to the first question, go get your husband, is very circumspect. She says she has no husband, but she never mentions her past relationships. She doesn't mention her current relationship. So this is no confession. Don't get the wrong idea. This woman didn't exactly open up on Oprah or Dr. Phil, right? At best, we can say she was truthful. And of course, Jesus himself acknowledges that. But there's no sense of repentance in this response. She's still hiding her evil deeds. It's as if the light has suddenly come a little close and she's just doing her best to obscure her past. But Jesus seizes on her answer to expose her deeds and in so doing convicts her. He explains first her marital history, which I'm sure was a great surprise to her. And he calls her out for living in sin in her current relationship. And in the way he answers her, I love this. Jesus highlights that she is hiding the truth because notice he says, you have correctly said you have no husband. In other words, he's saying you have spoken more truth about yourself than you are willing to acknowledge. And then at the end, he says this you have said truly. That would mean this is the only honest thing that you have said. That is that you have no husband. The power of God's light is in its ability to reveal the things hidden in the darkness of the human heart. This woman, you have to imagine, must have been a pariah in her society and in her town. I mean, she was a disgrace. I realize our our standards are much different today, not for the better. But in this day, to live like this would have meant carrying a tremendous guilt everywhere you go. Whenever she encountered anyone who knew her or knew of her circumstances, they would have shunned her. They would have had no problem at all making clear that they condemned her. She had few, if any, friends. The only ones who would have ever treated her with any respect at all would have been strangers who knew nothing of her situation. But here's a stranger who knows everything about her, and yet he isn't condemning her. It's a completely backward situation from her point of view. As a stranger, he shouldn't have known anything, but he does. And given what he knows, why did he ever talk to me? That would never have been the norm. Instead, he treats her with respect, and he even offers her a special gift, though one she doesn't understand. She must have been totally taken aback by all of this, and she responds by saying, I sense you're a prophet, referring to Jesus' insight. I know from our standpoint, listening with a Western ear, it just sounds like an understatement. You know all these things about me. You must be a prophet. And certainly that's an element to it. But she's saying a lot more here than meets the eye. Samaritans, remember, they rejected all Jewish prophets after Moses. Moses was the last prophet they accepted because all the other ones talked of Jerusalem. But there was one prophet they were willing to accept and look forward to, the one that Moses himself said would come one day in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when Moses said, chapter 18, verses 17 and 19, he said, The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, like Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So like the Jews, the Samaritans understood that this coming prophet Moses spoke of was to be the Messiah. They knew this was the coming Messiah. The Messiah was the only prophet that the Samaritans were willing to acknowledge because he was the only prophet mentioned by Moses. So when this woman says, I perceive you are a prophet, what she's doing is raising the prospect that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you're the woman, 
There are a number of places you could take the conversation from this point. After all that's just been said, I mean, for example, you could ask Jesus, well, how did you know all these things? That would be a first question, maybe. Or you could become defensive and you could seek to explain your circumstances. Well, it's not exactly like that. Let me explain. Well, I had the five guys, but she could go down that whole routine and just look sillier as she goes. Maybe you just get embarrassed and you get angry and you run away. That might be a likely outcome. But she does none of these things. Instead, she now takes the conversation into a spiritual direction. Asking Jesus to settle an age-old religious dispute. Verse 20. She says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The woman is asking Jesus to rule on whether the Samaritans or the Jews had the correct view on where they're supposed to worship. Samaritans had made, as we said, Gerizim the center of their worship, and that owes all the way back to Abraham and Jacob's day, by the way. This is the mountain that they thought or they said was the place Abraham sacrificed Isaac. It wasn't, but that was what they said. They said this is the place where Abraham met Melchizedek. Probably wasn't, but they said it. And since this mountain was near Shechem, and many significant events in the Old Testament occurred in connection with Shechem, then they logically concluded this must be an important place to God. And so again, it became a relic. But the Jewish scriptures revealed that the place God chose to put his temple was in Jerusalem under David. Because the Samaritans rejected the word, though, delivered through the prophets, they were in the wrong. And we've said this before, right? If you're not going to accept the word of God, then you're going to be wrong, inevitably. But the very question of where they were supposed to go worship the one that she's now asking Jesus to resolve, that question was actually about to become an obsolete issue. Look what Jesus says in response in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You notice where the conversation suddenly has gone. Where before she had no interest and no willingness to discuss eternal life or flowing waters, etc. She just wanted to stay focused on her will. By virtue of her life being exposed to someone who did not condemn her, the kindness of God. She now has a concern over these matters in a healthy way, and she's seeking insight. This is not a sarcastic conversation anymore. This is the sign of repentance taking hold. She hasn't repented in an outward way as yet, but her heart is turning. And in that moment, Jesus starts teaching. Here's the idea we said earlier about you engage with a purposeful intent. Jesus knew it, he would get here, and now that he's here, he can talk about it. Imagine how this conversation would have gone if she, he had started in verse 21 instead of asking for water. How far would he have gone with the conversation? So back to the point, Jesus begins by confirming. First of all, the answer to the question is the Jews are right, not you. He confirms the superiority of the Jewish perspective, but he moves past that. He almost says it in passing like it's not the, even the main issue. He is not concerned about where someone worships. He's concerned with how someone worships. He says a time is coming. When true worshipers won't go to a particular mountain to find God. In that day, the true mountain was Jerusalem, yes. And the Samaritans were in the wrong place, so it's a counterfeit, yes. But true salvation, being found through the Jews, must mean ultimately the Messiah of the Jews. That we end up at that point in our understanding of salvation. We don't stop at the building. We go to the man who is in the building, so to speak, to the God 
who lives there. And the Jewish people are the ones God selected to deliver this truth because they had the covenants, they had the prophets, they had the Messiah. They are the ones through whom the message of the gospel is going. So if you want salvation, you have to come through the Jewish people to find it, to know of it. But nevertheless, it's not found through Judaism. It's not found through the customs of Jewish teaching. It's not found through the law per se. It's not found through the rituals of the sacred places of Judaism. It's found through a person. Jesus says an hour is coming and is already here when he speaks to this woman. When true worship will be set free from a prescribed form or location. That word hour doesn't refer to literally the hour of the day he's standing there. It refers to a time or an age. And that time is the time of the church of now. It's a time from Messiah's first appearing until the time of the church's resurrection. That period of time is the time of now or the hour in which we don't have a building we go to, not one specific place on earth. During this time, instead, Jesus says, the father wants worshipers, true worshipers who approach him in spirit and in truth, neither of which are physical. You can't touch those things. You can't find them in one place. We must approach the father on his terms. Now, what Jesus is saying is not that the past process or the past prescription was wrong. He's not saying that it was wrong when they used to go to a temple. He's saying that that was a temporary accommodation for a period of history and that it was always intended to give way to a new period of history in which that physical location for worship was no longer needed and no longer expected. By the word, the Lord determined that worship would be limited to a certain people and to a certain place under the law with the Jewish people. He had a temple, he had sacrifices and all of that. But those constraints were a temporary measure and they were all in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah. Now that the Messiah has come, now those things are going away. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter nine, verses eight and nine. He says the Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. He was saying as long as the tabernacle was up and running and serviceable, it was a sign to the world that the true way to finding God was still yet to be revealed. True meaning Christ himself. But now that Christ has been revealed, God took the temple down in AD 70. But that approach is made possible by the revelation of the Messiah and our faith in him. So the worshiping of him should be coming in two ways, the truth and through the spirit. The truth makes possible a way to the Father. And our faith in the Messiah through a gift given by the Spirit makes our worship acceptable because we come to the truth. We come to understand who he is by the gift of faith. We must worship in the truth of Christ or else our worship is null and void. Don't ever mistake sincerity in some particular style of worship for a true understanding of who God is. Many, many wrong people are very, very sincere in their false worship. And very convincing if you look upon it doesn't mean God is hearing it. Jesus emphasizes that worshiping in truth is a prerequisite. If you don't know who the true God is, if you don't know him through the way he provided, that is through his son, then you are far from him. Secondly, you have to do it in spirit. And he says so because God himself is spirit. In other words, the father is not localizable. He's not in one place. He is spirit. So he is in all places at all times, which means ironically that though he is everywhere, you can't find him anywhere. As he exists in spirit form, we must approach him by his spirit. We approach him only through the spirit residing in us. You can't approach God by finding him in some particular place, but that's not how he is found. So what do the Samaritans have? Well, they had nothing. They lacked the truth of God's word, so they were far from him in that regard. And they lacked the spirit of God because they had not the gift of God by 
virtue of the lack of truth, so they could not worship him truly. And Jesus says to this woman, look, I'm not going to sit here and have a debate with you over Jerusalem versus Gerizim because the hour is coming, which refers to the church age. And he says it is now referring to her, referring to her moment. It is now for you to understand that you come to God only through spirit and through truth. He's announcing the arrival of salvation for this woman. He has brought her deeds into the light and he didn't condemn her. His kindness softened her heart. She entered into the conversation and Jesus told her that worship must be this new way. Now, what do you think she does at this point? All that's required at this point would be for her to embrace the truth, right? To make some indication that she's hearing what he's saying. Verses 25 and 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. The woman confesses her faith. What is her faith based in, though? Essentially, her faith is in God's promise of a Messiah, i.e. Deuteronomy 18.18. And when that one arrives, she says, he'll explain all things. He'll settle all arguments. He'll set straight every dispute. We won't have these issues anymore. I know that. I have faith in that promise. By this confession, she's showing she is a child of God. But the problem you might have at this point is you say, well, she didn't acknowledge he was Messiah. Well, that's a different question. All of the Old Testament saints were acknowledging the promise of a Messiah while waiting for his identity to be revealed, and that was the measure of faith for them. But once the identity of the Messiah is revealed, true faith will embrace the person of the Messiah. It is no longer sufficient for you to say, I have a belief in a promised Messiah, if once he's revealed, you do not accept him as such. That would be a Jewish view of the world even now, right? An unbelieving view of the world even now. That is not acceptable. So there then came the test for this woman. Jesus announces he is the one who Moses was speaking about and that she's been waiting for. Critics, by the way, of Jesus and of the Bible will tell you at times that Jesus never once declared that he was the Messiah or that he was the son of God. Uh, this verse, among others in John's gospel, counter that lie very easily. This is just one example of that. Now, like with the earlier encounter with Nicodemus, this scene teaches us a lot about salvation. What is it teaching us in this case? In other words, at this point, as the woman has come to know of Jesus as his Messiah, and we'll see her reaction next week. But what is the essential element of salvation that's being examined here? In the case of Nicodemus, it was the manner of salvation. And in the case of this woman, it is that ritual and tradition are not a substitute for true worship of God. The time of relics and special buildings and rituals is over. And it only ever existed under the Jewish framework anyway. But that age is gone, and in its place has come a new age, an hour, Jesus says, when worship shows no regard for form or place. No regard. With Nicodemus, we learn that salvation comes by this new birth. And with this woman now, we learn that our worship must be guided by that new spirit that comes with the new birth. Now, there's some intriguing contrast between these two characters when you stop and you look at them for a minute. For example, in John 3, you see a man of high regard, high reputation, a Jew who possessed the truth of heaven, or so he thought. And he came to Jesus, though he had nothing to hide, in the night. And in ignorance, as we find out. Now, in John 4, you have a woman of low regard, a woman, not a man, low regard, ill repute. She's not the privileged Jew with all the truth. She's the Samaritan trapped in lies. She has everything to hide, but she meets Jesus at noon, the sixth hour, out in the open. It reminds us the Lord is not a respecter. Of persons, both that Jew and this woman needed the truth. Neither was closer to it than the other one, though one had the true religious system, at least as God had originally delivered it. It had been so perverted, it made no sense to anyone anymore. And he had totally missed the truth because he lacked the gift of God. 
And this woman was absolutely sure she had the truth and was not afraid to be seen or talk about it. But she was also far from it and had a lot holding her back from entering into the light of God. Now, the apostles, unlike Jesus, are still very much respecters of persons. So when they return in verse 27, this will be the last verse for the night. Look what they say. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? As the disciples approached the well on foot, they must have observed him speaking to her from a distance, right? They're walking back and they're, they're wondering, why is he talking to that woman? Why is he talking to a Samaritan woman, for that matter? And they had to have been completely perplexed, right? They're completely amazed because Jesus is basically breaking one of the more important rules of Jewish society, one of the more important restrictions, speaking to a Samaritan woman. And though they're curious about this, they don't say anything. They speak to neither of them. Well, it's obvious why their silence would have been directed toward Jesus. Out of respect, they wouldn't have challenged his authority. But why don't they say anything to the woman? Because they don't want to break the same rule. Because she's a Samaritan. Because she's a woman and a Samaritan woman. We're not going to talk to her. If they don't say anything, why does he say they don't say anything? Why make a point of that? I think it's to illustrate the disciples' ongoing prejudice. Jesus has spoken kindly to an enemy, and she's received his word, as we've seen, but the disciples of the Lord are still living in their flesh. They are unable to move past human prejudice. Why is this the issue? Because this verse becomes the turning verse for the second half of the chapter. In the turning point of this verse, you get this nice contrast, as we'll see next week, between what the disciples do next and what this woman does next. The disciples of Jesus versus the Samaritan woman who doesn't know anything about religion. One of them goes off and does the right thing. The other ones don't. And that sets up a contrast that takes us into the second half. Of this chapter, what does it mean when you come to know the Lord, and what does that look like in a life lived out as a disciple, versus what does it mean when your religion is your faith, as opposed to faith is your religion? Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder of where our salvation arrives from, how it originates, and who has made it possible. Forgive us, Father, for our pride, even as we may not have understood that's what we were experiencing in times past, and perhaps. Uh, It'll be something we'll encounter again, and you can remind us once more. But, Father, don't let us boast in anything but you. You is the father of faith. You is the one who made the plan, ordained the circumstances, called us into faith in the appointed day, saved us by the work of Christ, not our own, and has begun a work inside us that you will bring to conclusion. Thank you, Father, for that gift and for that legacy of work that you're doing and father thank you for the opportunity to serve you now in the time that we have in this hour when we worship you in spirit and truth i pray father that you would uh, remind us at all times that we don't worship at a mountain or a building or an altar or cross we worship in our heart according to the word of god we do so father for that is the kind of true worshiper you seek thank you father for that opportunity Uh, and then i end father by asking you to send us out from here as you would each week and have done in the past with a renewed interest in sharing these things, that we wouldn't just be learners and hearers, we'd be doers. Let us uh, reach people with what we've learned, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.